If you would, grab a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, that's where we'll begin in this part of our worship. Matthew chapter 22. Good to see you this morning. We have a number of visitors. Thank you so much for being here. We're glad that you're here. We hope you feel welcome. We'd love to get to know you. If there's something that we can do for you, some need that you have that has brought you to our door today, we'd love to know about that. And if we can in some way help you to help you know more about God, to help you to have some help and some spiritual need, just whatever it is, please just let us know about that. But we are glad that you're here. I also want to mention before I get started uh, to the high school and junior high kids and parents that we're planning on having our monthly devotional at our house at 5 o'clock tonight. So if you didn't know that or didn't remember that, uh, be planning to do that. I hope that uh, you're able to make it 5 o'clock at our house uh, this evening. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 15. Matthew 22, 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. Well, it is that time of year. It is the political season, and we are living in an increasingly bitter political climate. I think it's important as we engage in a world that is full of politics and is full of the division that politics can bring that we think carefully about what that should mean for you and me as Christians. I think it's important for us to know it's not the first time that political climates have gotten bitter not just in this nation, although this nation has a lively history of lots of political bitterness throughout the years, but the New Testament was also written during a time of increasingly hostile political circumstances. Now, in the New Testament era, they did not live under a democracy as we do. They did not live under anything that could even be called a republic. They lived in an empire. And what that meant practically, if you were a citizen of the Roman Empire in the time of the New Testament, is that nobody really cared what you thought about politics at all. Nobody is interested in straw polls in that time. We're not having any primaries. Okay? We're not interested in midterm elections. If you lived in the era of the New Testament, then no one cared what you thought at all because the emperor was going to be the emperor and that decision was way above your head. The question I want to ask and I want us to think about is how do Christians respond like those Christians did in an era when people are increasingly divisive and what we might just call, this is what's in my notes, super crazy about politics. So I want to talk for just a minute this morning about politics. In this text that we've just read, Jesus has handed the political hot potato of his day. It is the hot potato of, do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? It is a political question. So we can't just say, well, Jesus never talked politics. That's not precisely true. And I believe when Jesus has handed that hot potato, we learn from his answer how a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, should respond to political difficulties and questions. And then as Jesus led his apostles to teach... 
He showed them how they should respond to the political difficulties of their era. And I think we can learn something from that. Our faith influences our thoughts and views on politics. But I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the primary way our faith should influence our views of politics is by giving politics context. When we have faith in Jesus, we understand the context in which politics exists. And so, what we're going to talk about this morning is how we can keep political involvement and concern in context. And I want us to look at four things that the New Testament teaches us and shows us about politics and maybe how politics should interface with our faith. The first is this, we will respect and obey leaders. We're going to spend the first few minutes here just looking at a set of New Testament passages that really focus and ground us in how we respond to government generally and to leaders specifically, specific men and women who were in charge over us. So here in Matthew chapter 22, look at Jesus' response with me to the tax question in verse 20. Matthew 22 and verse 20, they hand him the coin and Jesus says in verse 20, whose likeness and inscription is this? So there's a, on the coin, a little face, just like on our coins, except it's not the face of one of the founding fathers of America, it's the face of Caesar. And so they say, Caesar, verse 21, he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So the crux of Jesus' answer to the question of should we pay tax or not is that Caesar has a domain and an authority. You know he has a domain and authority because he has coins made with his picture on them. So if that's Caesar's, then Caesar can say, you know what, give me my coin back. It's mine. And so he says, if Caesar wants his coin back, give him his coin back. It's his. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So there is a domain that Jesus acknowledges in which Caesar has authority and power and needs to be respected because of that and needs to be obeyed because of that. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But he also says in verse 21, render to God the things that are God's because the much bigger authority and the much bigger claim of obedience is God's claim of obedience. So, yes, render to Caesar what's his, but don't forget to render to God his things. And don't think that by serving Caesar in some way you've served God. And don't think that by serving God, you're somehow exempt from serving Caesar. He says, both of those things need to happen. And my disciples will respect and obey leaders who have authority over them, like Caesar, as shown by the fact that he can call for his money back. So in answer to the question, should we pay taxes? Jesus says, yes. It's almost like I do sometimes with my kids where I say, give him what's his. Give it back. If Caesar wants his money back, give it back. Render to Caesar what's his. And he has the right to do that according to Jesus. Now let's look at a few other passages in the New Testament. Let's look in Romans 13. Romans 13. Paul gives a, a, a better formed or a more fully formed a description of how Christians respond to governing leaders. We're going to get this under us and then we're going to talk more about the modern American political situation. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, it says... Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject 
to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So you see a general posture here in verse 1, be subject to the governing authorities. And the answer to the question, why are we subject to governing authorities, is answered by Paul in Romans 13. He says the reason we submit and respect and obey our leaders is because they are God's servants to administer justice. They are doing God's work. Now, I'm just going to speak briefly about this. I believe the picture Paul is working with is the idea that governments help check evil. Governments are there to keep evil from growing rampant and people just breaking the law at all times. The government is there to say, no, we're going to stop evil, at least have a check on evil. So Paul is saying they're doing something for you. They're helping you to live in a world where there is less rampant evil. And we're all blessed by that. We're thankful for that. He says they are servants of God. And he says then, Christians respect and obey for two reasons. First, we don't want to face their wrath. He says, if you don't want to be afraid of the authority, just do good. And he also says, we respect it because we know that's God's will for us. God is the one behind government. Now, before we jump away from this text, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Paul is not saying, please hear me well. Paul is not saying that every government is good. That is not what he is saying. He is not saying God endorses every ruler. I think you just have to open a history book to see that. Nor is he saying that governments are always only a terror to evil. Paul himself was the subject of horrible miscarriages of justice. Paul himself dealt with corruption in the government. And he was abused personally by the government because of that that injustice and corruption. The point he's making is not about each government specifically. It's that Christians have a posture of respect and obedience because government, generally speaking, is a gift from God to us. So we respect because we have a conscience that wants to serve God. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2. I'm in 1 Peter 2 and verse 13 here. 1 Peter 2 and verse 13. Peter writes, be subject. Notice that term again. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. You see the same posture, same words, be subject, not just for the sake of being, getting along with the rulers, but for the Lord's sake, he says in verse 13. And he also specifies, this is interesting, 
he specifies not just the emperor, but also the governors. The governors would have been a lot more local. Governors are some of the people we read about in the New Testament. People like Pilate, people like Felix and Festus and Agrippa. People who are local officials, who are over, over them, and they also deserve respect and obedience. And he also says specifically in verse 17, honor the emperor, respect and obey leaders. I'll add to that. We're not going to turn to this. Uh, Titus 3 and verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. Now, part of honoring here also involves speaking evil of no one and the idea of being submissive and obedient. So, all of this, you see, is working around the same idea that we will respect and obey leaders. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is the last passage I want to look at as we deal with this right now. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 1 says, First of all then, 1 Timothy 2, 1, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So there are four different words in verse 1 for a prayer supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Yes, thankful prayers. We are thankful for our government. We are thankful for our government. Thankful. They do things for us, and that's good. But he says all kinds of prayers offered for all people, but especially, verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions. And the, the prayer that we're given to pray in verse 2, that we may live a quiet and peaceful life, godly and dignified in every way. The prayer is not, please hear me, the prayer that we describe here is not that they would rule according to the Bible. The prayer is not that they would do good in their personal lives. The prayer is essentially that they will leave us alone and let us do what God's called us to do. That we can live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. That is the prayer. So, does that mean we don't want our leaders to do good or to live by the Bible? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that our prayer is in a different context than that. Our prayer is we respect and obey them because they're doing this work and we hope and we ask God that they will not make laws that make it more difficult for us to respect and obey God. And there is the implication that that will be good because in verse 4 it says God desires all men to come to a knowledge of the truth. Something implied about the spread of the gospel. All right, so you got all that under you. So, respect and obey leaders. Can I say a word or two about the leaders that these passages are describing? When Jesus asks for the coin, the inscription and the picture on the coin would have been that of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius was known for his infamous retreats to the island of Capri. Tacitus, who was a historian shortly after, uh, the life of Tiberius, said that Tiberius was, quote, infamous for his cruelty, though he veiled his debaucheries. An awful record exists of Tiberius, the luxury that he lived in and the debased sexual appetites that he indulged. Tiberius was succeeded by the emperor Caligula, who was known for his harshness and sadism. He was assassinated. He was 
then succeeded by Claudius, who is the one that we know from New Testament studies, expelled the Jews from Rome. And he was succeeded by Nero, who killed his mother, who scapegoated Christians for the fire that gutted Rome, and who lit Christians on fire as living torches in his garden. Here is my question. Do you think that Christians might have had any opinions about the politics of the Roman emperors? What are they told to do about those opinions? Respect and obey their leaders. Those are the men that Peter says honor the emperor. And you know when Peter says honor the governors who are sent by them to do good, to do their will? Those are men like Pilate who killed Jesus and Herod who killed James and Felix and Festus who left Paul in chains. And they are to honor and respect them. So my point is, if they were intended to respect and obey their leaders, how much more are we expected to respect and obey our leaders in our time? Where we're not dealing with anywhere near the level of these kinds of men. We cannot allow politics to obscure just how striking it is that we are told to respect and obey our leaders. This is what Christians do. This is who Christians are and have always been. This is the expectation at the very beginning of the gospel that we deal with politics by saying no matter what happens, no matter who it is, I respect and I obey my leaders. We will have leaders from time to time that we disagree with strongly, that embarrass us, whose moral lives we see as lacking. Respect and obey your leaders. I am not very old, but I have lived long enough now to have been at least aware of the grave concern that existed during the presidency of Bill Clinton and the grave concern that existed, I mean among Christians, by the way, the grave concern that existed when George W. Bush was elected in somewhat iffy circumstances because of the Florida vote. And grave concern that existed when Barack Obama was elected. And now grave concern that has existed when Donald Trump was elected. And my point by bringing that up is that somebody is always unhappy with the political direction of our country. Always. Somebody is always unhappy. And I need to say this, so I'm going to ask for your attention. I am concerned, I am disturbed by the lack of respect I have seen Christians give officials that they don't agree with. Now that happened when Barack Obama was president. And I remember I've seen the same people who insulted Obama now angry that people insult Trump. And then I have seen the same people who were angry when people insulted Obama now insulting Trump. All leaders deserve our respect and obedience, even if we didn't vote for them. We will respect and obey our leaders. And I will go a step further and say, I remember Christians bemoaning in services of the church the immorality of President Clinton. And now I see those same people approving of an openly immoral president without censure because the policy is different. 
And that disturbs me. Because the question is, what does that signal to our world? It signals that we are political creatures more than moral creatures. What I am saying is not, let's go correct all the imbalances of the past. What I am saying is, isn't it better to say that our leaders have our respect and obedience and that sometimes we're going to disagree with some of the things they do and some of the policies that they hold? It seems to me that we need to return to the biblical principle of respect and obedience for our leaders, regardless of what our political opinions are. All right, let's talk politics. Let's go for point number two. We have only gotten through one. We will not divide Christ's body over politics. Let's go to Matthew chapter 10 for a moment. Matthew chapter 10. It's fascinating to me that when Jesus called his disciples... He called men specifically with different views. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10 and verse 2. Matthew 10 and verse 2 says, The names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. That word in verse 4 that is translated zealot in my version or Canaanian you might have in yours, if you're reading from one of the older versions, it's a fascinating word. It distinguishes him. See, you've got two Simons, right? You've got Simon who is called Peter, Simon the rock, and then you've got Simon the Canaanian. So they're distinguished by this term Canaanian. Canaanian is a unique word that has nothing to do with Canaan or Cana or any geographical place. It is the Aramaic word for zealot. So your version might even have the word zealot in it. The zealots were a Jewish nationalistic group that sought independence from Rome. They wanted to be independent. We would call them radicals or revolutionaries. Later on, they become what we might call terrorists in today's terms. And the fact that Simon is known by that like if you were to see Simon, you'd say, hey, Simon the Zealot. Means that it was at least a significant part of his thinking, if not a full-blown identity. So Jesus calls Simon the Zealot, which is surprising enough, right, when you learn a little bit about that view. But then he also calls, verse 3, Matthew the tax collector. Tax collectors are notorious in this era because they were often corrupt, but that's not the most important part of being a tax collector. A tax collector worked for the enemy, and a tax collector benefited off the subjugation of the Jewish people. A tax collector was not popular because tax collectors were considered to be unpatriotic. So you have an extreme patriot on one side and a man everybody would consider unpatriotic. What if somebody said, hey, what do you think of the emperor? What's that discussion going to be like when you got Matthew and Simon the Zealot? I bring this up to say it is obvious, even from the list, that they are expected to have their political views immediately be subordinate to their discipleship. They're disciples first, and we're going to leave that behind. We're not just going to sit around and talk politics. We're here to learn about Jesus. We're not just going to sit around and talk politics. We need to grow and we need to spread the gospel. Something bigger is happening here. 
they probably had very different perspectives. Yet those two men served Jesus together side by side. Have you ever thought about this statement? Galatians 3 and verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Have you ever considered the fact that Jews and Greeks probably had very different political opinions? There is a racial difference there. They're usually from different parts of the world. And there is going to be a natural philosophical difference. What about slaves and free? A slave is going to have a very specific set of opinions and experiences that are going to inform how he thinks. Sometimes male and female, even today, have very different political opinions. But you see what happens is in Christ, we are all one. So all of those things are intended to disappear. Not because we suddenly become different people, but because we consciously put those things to the side in the pursuit of something bigger. We are one in Christ Jesus. So, there are Christians who are going to disagree politically. It is going to happen. We should be prepared for that. Much of that is going to stem from our background and experience like Simon and Matthew. Their jobs, their past, maybe what they heard growing up, maybe a group of people they ran with, whatever it may be, they're going to be informed by that. And they're going to come to different conclusions about what the government should do. Not only that. You're going to have different opinions on different policy things just based on your own experience. If you are an immigrant, you're going to have a certain view about immigration, aren't you? It's going to be hard not to. If you have benefited from the welfare system, you're going to have a certain view on the welfare system. That's just natural. There are going to be things that inform that. And what I am saying is that we need to be careful that our politics about things that don't matter as much as Christ's body don't end up dividing the body of Christ. I have seen Christians make bold declarations online that a Christian should never vote for a particular candidate. I don't see how someone could be a Christian and vote for them. I have spoken with Christians who felt they could no longer worship in a church because another person voted different from them in the church. And I remember distinctly when I took a preaching trip to Venezuela. This is during the era of Hugo Chavez. And I, I just was curious. I was just making small talk, and I asked one of the brothers there. I said, hey, what do you guys think of Chavez? He said, oh, no, brother. We don't talk about that. It was so divisive that they knew there were people who were really adamantly for and really adamantly against Chavez. They said, we just can't bring it into the church. There's wisdom in that. In my view, this is the very definition of a Romans 14 matter. That is a matter where we can both think what we think, disagree, and both be right. But here is what I am saying. Let's keep our political involvement and concern in context. Because it may be that what we say when we loudly declare our political opinions pushes people away from Jesus. And it may be that what we say when we loudly declare our political opinions causes a rift between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ. How can we say we have done the right thing when we divide Christ's body over politics? 
There are higher values than political opinions. Third, we will not trust man to solve our problems. I think for a moment we just need to consider the spiritual danger of politics because what politics is, is men making promises about what they're going to do that's going to help us. And that's not new. This is, well, that's not what I was hoping for. That's not new. The Bible tells about Absalom. Absalom winning the hearts of the people of Israel because when they would come, he would say to them, Oh, that I were judge in Israel. Then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me and I would give them justice. That is a campaign promise. And here's Absalom. I mean, he's a fine-looking guy. He loves everybody, gives him a big hug. Everybody loves him. He says, just make me judge. Everything will be great. Guess what? Absalom won. He took over the country. While some of that is fine, the idea that man can solve problems, and, and it's fine that, that leaders can make promises and want to change things and do things in a good way that they can. Here is the issue. We often get lured into thinking that these people are the answer. And that if this guy, this girl, gets into office, they're going to be the one to change everything. It never ceases to amaze me. Like I said, I'm not that old, but I've been through a number of political cycles. It never ceases to amaze me that somehow we believe this next guy, he's the one. He's going to fix it all. And then what happens? Well, he either loses or he gets elected, and then one or two years later we say, oh, well, he's kind of just like the others. But this next guy, he's the one. It's almost like Aggie football. Next year, next year. It never ceases to amaze me that we really believe, we really genuinely believe that man is going to do it. Some guy, if we could just get the right one, they would be the one to finally fix the country, finally fix this problem in our city. We trust man to solve our problems. Let me give you a few passages here. I know this may be a little hard to read. Psalm, 143, Psalm 146, 3 to 5. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Psalm 118, 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. He is arguing, if we trust in people, people die, and then all the great ideas they had die with them. A person's just a person. They're subject to the same limitations that we have. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man, Psalm 60 and verse 11. This is the reason why, very often, when God's people reach out for alliances, God is furious. Because God is saying, you, when you make an alliance and you say, you know, Egypt or Assyria, they'll be the ones that come and save the day. You're saying, we don't need God. This is what Isaiah says about the Egyptians. Isaiah 31, 3, the Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. They're not God. Their horses are just flesh. They're going to die. So why would you think that they're going to be able to provide for you a salvation that God should provide? I am not saying 
that politicians are all liars who never keep their promises. I'm saying that Christians often act as if men really are the key to all our problems. And men will fail us. Men will disappoint us. Men will grow corrupt. Men will abuse their power. Men will fall and fade. And even if none of that happens and they're great men, ultimately they're going to die. What happens to our hope then? We start just waiting for the next one and the next one and the next one. God is the one that we trust. God is the one we turn to and rely on, not man. And finally, we will remain confident that God is in control. Would you go with me to Daniel 5, Daniel chapter 5? We will remain confident that God is in control. Very often, one of the struggles of paying attention to politics and the movements that happen among the nations is that we lose a sense that there is any rhyme or reason to it. And it is hard for us to trace just what exactly is going on, how it's good, what's happening in this part of the world or that part. And we need the reassurance that Scripture gives us about God's power. In Daniel chapter 5 and verse 18, Daniel speaks to, Neb- uh, to Belshazzar. He says in Daniel 5.18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and of gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. And so, of course, Belshazzar learns that that night the kingdom will be taken from him. At this stage in their history, the Jewish people have watched as a a more powerful army than theirs, has come into their city and besieged it, taken over, burned the temple, the holy temple of God, raised the city, and taken the people captive to a foreign land. As they serve in Babylon, they learn a new language. They learn the names of a whole bunch of new gods. They eat different things. They hear different stories. All the time, their hearts are pining for their homeland. And they had to be wondering. We've heard all this time about God. Where is Jehovah? I thought he was supposed to be the God. And yet here we are, suffering. And in Daniel, in this book, God reassures them. He says, I'm not just the boss of Israel, guys. I'm the boss of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Cyrus and Artaxerxes and Darius, all the rulers of the world. 
and I raise them up and I take them down at my will. I am in control. And that's a lesson that we need. We need to know that God is in control when things look scary. We need to know that God is in control when it looks like the things that we don't want to happen are happening in our nation or in our world. We need to know that God is in control when it looks like Satan is winning. And if you read carefully the book of Revelation and the idea that there is a power in the world that is evil and is growing and it looks like everything is lost for the people of God, the message of Revelation is God is still on his throne, still in control, and when he is ready, he will act. Now, I know that's hard because we don't always know how God is in control or what God is doing, especially because we don't have the information of revelation that we have for the Old Testament. And it's hard when you look at our political system and you say, well, what, what is God doing? Is God doing this? Or maybe it appears that he's doing something and then that doesn't, nothing comes of it. And so we wonder and we doubt and sometimes we get jaded and we assume God isn't going to do anything. But again and again, the lesson of the Bible and the lesson of history is that God is in control of the world. So let me bring that home. Whatever happens in the midterms, God's in control. Whatever happens with President Trump or the Mueller investigation or North Korea, God is in control. Whatever happens with the Supreme Court and Roe versus Wade, Russian meddling, Immigration battles, the media and fake news, God is in control. Whether Republicans or Democrats win the White House, or whether it's the Libertarians or the Green Party or the Whigs or the Federalists or the Bull Moose Party, God is in control. In fact, God's in control when there is no White House. Nothing has changed. So I urge you in this political season, and in all the political seasons that follow this one, to keep political involvement and concern in context. And part of that context is none of this matters because God is still in control. So if you want to be politically involved, I think that's great. I understand your concern for this country and I understand you want to speak your voice and speak your mind. I encourage you to do that. But I encourage you, as you do, keep it in context. Remember what's important. And I might add, just as a closing thought, that a lot of that energy, that willingness to offend people with what you really think and believe, that intense interest we could really use in spreading the gospel. And that it may be that my political views I can keep in my back pocket if it's going to help somebody hear about Jesus. But let's not waste all our enthusiasm on things that are not the most important thing we could be doing. Let's not forget that even if our favorite party or person gets elected, Jesus is still the answer to the problems of life. And I am still surrounded by a nation of people who need him like I do. Would you pray with me about that? Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for this time that you've given us. Uh, we're thankful for your word that guides us in times like these. Our lives change, Father, and we go through cycles and seasons. And it is a comfort to know that you have seen it all and you have been through it all and that you have words of wisdom and guidance for us. 
Father, as we think about your word and, and what you've told us there, we pray that you'll help us to be salt and light to the world around us by the way we deal with uh, the political system and the hostilities that it's currently creating. I pray that you'll help us, Father, to be wise as serpents, that we'll think carefully about how we use our, our words, that our speech will be with grace seasoned with salt. And I pray, Father, that we can have an impact for good on those around us. I pray that you'll help us to remember these important things that we've studied from your word, that we can be respectful and obedient to those in power over us, knowing that in serving them, we serve you. And to be careful about the way we talk and think about them. And that we can continue to pray for them, to pray for our country, and to pray that we can live a quiet and peaceable life. Father, I pray that you'll help us as a body to remember the importance of our unity based on our agreement to follow you and not any other thing. And to be careful, Father, not to push our brethren away from us just because we think differently. I pray that you'll help us to trust you and not people. And I pray that you'll help us to remember at all times, no matter how bleak it may be, that you are in control of the world. Father, give us this trust. Give us the strength to endure times like these. And give us wisdom to know the best way. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to the gospel. You're ready to become a Christian, to be a disciple of Jesus, to have a new life that begins with you leaving behind a life of sin and being washed clean in the blood of Jesus. We'd love nothing more than to help you begin that journey today by turning away from those sins, putting your faith in him as the Messiah, the Son of God, being baptized into Christ. If there is any need that you have that we can help you with, we invite you to come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.